You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Micah. I was very impressed when Pastor Jim read that a little earlier, and most of you found where it was at. From time to time, I do some adjunct faculty teaching at different Bible colleges and seminaries, and I, in the field of expertise I teach is exegetical studies and pastoral theology. And often you get new people and their young students who think they already know all there is to know about Scripture. And so I often ask them to turn to the book of Hezekiah, chapter 3. And I wait till I don't hear any pages turning anymore. Sometimes they even ask, is that the Old Testament or the New Testament? So for those of you that are currently looking for the book of Hezekiah, there is none. Book of Micah, a prophet in the Old Testament, a gentleman who was trying to bring Israel back to where they needed to be in their covenant relationship. We're going to be looking for a few moments there at what I have entitled our brief talk together as One World, One Church, and One Mission, a discussion in integral missions. If you would like, before we do that, there I have two points I would like to make before I forget. I'm not old. My brain just leaks a little bit. Um, the first one is if you'd like to know a little bit more about um, what Jeanette and I do, of course, we do have an online presence and Facebook and all of that. But uh, Pastor Jim did an interview with us. How many years ago was that? Maybe two? Two or three? Five years ago. <laughs> I'm not a liar. I'm just evangelistic. About five years ago, uh, there was a CD with it back there, but you can also get that online. I would also like to publicly say thank you for releasing one of your young people to work with us on a short-term uh, basis. Katie, uh, Katie, Kenny, wave your hand. I'm making sure she gets to Ireland and points beyond. And we are excited about what God is going to do with your representative to Irish youth and children. We firmly believe that without an endorsement from the local church, we do not accept people, and she has a glowing endorsement. So, thank you. The world we live in, one world, the church we are in, the church, the body of Christ, the mission that that church has been given by our Heavenly Father is very clear. For some years, as I've been watching missions and watching the churches, I've been trying to find out what the future is of the missionary effort in the world in which we live. Many people are discouraged because traditional missions is seeing a decline in new missionaries sign up for missionary service. The average age of the demographics of what we know as North American missions continues to grow, with over half, maybe three-quarters of the missionary force going from the United States today is over the age of 55 to 60. And they say, is the world of missions over? I say, no, the world of missions is not over. The world of missions is only just begun and will not be finished until that day when Christ returns to take to be with him. 
but the world of missions is changing. And I ask, what is the secret for the missionary effort for tomorrow? And I have long held the conviction that the secret for the missionary effort for tomorrow is revival in the church today. When we as believers come to the point where we no longer believe in missions as a program where we go from one country to another, from a light area to a dark area to minister to those people, when we throw that away and we believe that missions is when God so permeates the church that they can do nothing but talk about Jesus Christ and what he does in the life of people, and they do it in their own community and around the world, that is what we call integral missions. I see the gospel changing the world for better. In countries where there was no middle class, when people get saved, they rise out of poverty and they create a middle class, which is predominantly Christian. Not because we pay them become believers, although some people have accused us of that but because God so permeates them and so changes them that their life changes and their world changes, their community changes, and eventually we change a country by changing the life of individuals. And the secret behind that is not in a program that is successful, excuse me, the secret behind that is in a believer who so believes in what Jesus Christ had done for him that they're willing to live and bleed and die for that belief. That's what's going to change the world. So when we talk about one world, the world we live in never changes. But the world we live in always changes. The world we live in is always the same size, but the world we live in is always shrinking. We used to be able to define races by geographic boundaries. But if you look at the United States, for instance, one of the big discussions in Christianity today in this country is what we call the diaspora movement. That used to refer to the Jewish people who were no longer living in Israel. Now it refers to people who have left their home country to go to another country. United States is number three on countries in the world that receive immigrants from other countries. And we talk about the Indian diaspora movement, where people from the country of India move outside of their country. We talk about the African diaspora movement, where people from Africa move to other places in Africa and move to North America. We talk about the Latino diaspora movement, where we have Latinos who move outside of Latin America. We talk about the Korean diaspora movement. There are more Korean missionaries who are sent out at the current by the Presbyterian Church to other countries than there are in the whole continent of Europe. Over 22,000 missionaries a year leave Korea to go out as missionaries. And their model is they leave and they become immigrants and citizens of their new countries. I know of one group who is sending missionaries to the United States from Peru. They claim to have over 500 missionaries that come to this country. And they come to this country without ever having a thought of returning. So we look at our world and we try to define the world and we try to decide how we're going to reach that world. And we are confused because we can no longer say, I'm a missionary from point A to point B. We have to say, I'm a missionary sharing my faith as God helps me share that. And when we look at the diaspora movement in the United States, there is a belief that that movement and the high rate of conversion of people within those diaspora peoples in this country could be the future of the church as we know it here. 
One of the first times I went to a Muslim country, it sort of surprised me as we were discussing about Christianity in that Muslim country. Because the Muslim perspective in those countries is that the Christian mission movement is a continuation of the, of the Crusades from the Middle Ages. And their belief in jihad and all that is that the Crusades are still going. So that today when we talk about the difficulties that we have with the Islamic situation in the world in which we live, they still draw the line at the Crusades. And it's merely a continuation of that. If we don't understand those things, when it comes to the point of Christianity and sharing Christianity with the world in which we live, we will not be affected in leading people to Jesus Christ. About a week and a half ago, somewhere in there, I was on a tour in Asia. I went to a Buddhist country, uh, Myanmar, which is opening up to the gospel. It was previously a... Um, Buddhist monarchy. It's now military dictatorship. Went from there to Indonesia. When I arrived in Indonesia, God blessed, we had a couple church meetings. We had uh, five Muslims come to the Lord on the Sunday we were there. It was an Easter Sunday, and I can't think of any better way to celebrate Easter than uh, a Muslim coming to Christ. As I began to talk to them, they were worried. They weren't worried about Christianity. They were worried about ISIS. Have you ever heard that word? And we often don't understand what that's all about. What is ISIS? What is it? It's a terrorist organization. Well, we say that it's moving forward, but the fight that ISIS has between the Sunni and the Shia Muslims has been going on for millennia. And when I got to Indonesia, one of the largest populations in the world of Muslims, they have 255 million Muslims in Indonesia, they are worried about ISIS. Why? Because 500 citizens from Indonesia went to fight with ISIS. And the Indonesian government, out of fear that they would bring the jihad back to Indonesia, immediately dissolved their citizenship. And they were worried about what would happen if those people snuck back in. And then they began to talk about why was ISIS successful? Why is it that they're recruiting people in the United States, recruiting people in Europe, recruiting people around the world to go and fight in what they believe is the jihad, which, elementarily speaking, is a fight within Muslim against themselves. But it spreads around the world and it's successful. And one of the inside people that was discussing that security said to me, he said, you know, ISIS invests one-third of all the people they recruit in cyber warfare, recruiting on the Internet. They appeal to people to tie their faith to their actions and move out into the world, and that's why they're so successful. And I look at that, and a little light went on in my head. And I said, just a minute, here is a model that didn't start with them. It started with those 12 apostles that we heard about in Sunday school who committed their life in such a way that they went out and just shared the way they were living. So when I look at the church today and I look at one world, one church, one mission, it becomes very clear that the traditional approach the missions that we've had in the past needs to change 
But the gospel message is not negotiable. We live in a damaged world, a world filled with darkened souls. We are in one church. We are the church, and our purpose is to glorify God. We have one mission. We live as reconciled people, leading others to be reconciled people. We are called to integral missions, a life of holiness, a life of mercy, a life of humility. But I ask, what does that mean? We work in some closed countries. In some of those countries, when you be, when you change your faith from Christianity or from uh, Islam to Christianity, you instantly lose your citizenship. Many of the Asian countries have what they call the freedom of religious law, freedom of religion law. That means it's illegal to speak against any other religion. It's illegal also to convert. So when we go, what do we do? We don't convert people to new religions. We merely preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when God changes their life, they spontaneously decide what they need to do to change. In spite of the fact, on a daily basis, I get reports of believers who are being persecuted, often killed, their homes burned, and run completely out of their community because people are threatened when Christianity changes people's lives. But when we talk about mission-style evangelism, lifestyle evangelism, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel to people, teaching them that God loves them and he wants them to love him in return by coming to repentance and have a holistic transformation so that the image of Christ is created in them anew, that threatens the world of darkness in which we live. In the majority world of the church today, they don't talk about if they will be persecuted, but they talk about how they will respond when they are persecuted. The persecution could be as mild as the denial of a job or refusal to let your children into the schools. And it can go from there to the maximum of losing your life for him. Micah, a shortened form of the word of a longer Hebrew name, which means who is like Jehovah, was writing to the nation of Israel here in the book of Micah. He was writing to a group of people who God had blessed to the point where they were engaged in selfish materialism and empty religion. Now, I know that doesn't sound like our country at all today. We have no problem with materialism, right? We identify with the people in most of the countries I go to who live, some of them, less on less than a dollar a month. They count their meals as in how many meals they've had in how many days. Micah said to Israel, you guys have got it all mixed up. You have left the covenant you had with Jehovah. His name, who was like Jehovah, is very clear. He wanted them to come back 
to that covenant relationship. So in the book of Micah, there's three times when he says, Listen, O Israel. Oh, hear, O Israel. It was a summons to pay attention. The first one is in chapter 1. The next one is in chapter 3. And here in chapter 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, or listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead your case. In verses 1 through 8, he actually takes imagery from a legal proceeding when two people in a covenant have a disagreement and they need to either dissolve the covenant or hold someone else to the obligation of the commitment they had for that covenant. And we have Jehovah being the um, accuser, the plaintiff against Israel who had a covenant and they forgot about what God gave them to do. So he's trying to address that selfish materialism that religious complacency that led to the disintegration of society as it should have been. It led to social injustices and meaningless religious ritual. India, one billion people, one million gods. Every place you go, there is a temple where somebody decided that they had a spiritual epiphany and they set up a little altar, set up little candles, and they pray to that altar five, six, seven times a day. You will see little idols and little worship places right in the middle of the street. And when people come to build the road, it's a it's against all religious concept to violate a holy place. So the road splits, all the cars go right around, and you'll see a person on their knees right there in the middle of the highway. Israel was getting messed up with idolatry at the time when Micah wrote this. And God comes through Micah and he says, I have a complaint. So we see in verses 1 and 2, we see the context that he gives of a courtroom environment when he says, stand up, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord, hear the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against Israel. Against his people, he's lodging a charge against Israel. So in verse 1, you have that summons to stand and plead the case. Verse 2, you have a charge of the witnesses. God was having trouble finding people to be on the jury of the covenant between him and Israel because they were supposed to be the witness of a divine relationship in a world of nations that had no recognition of God. And so he appealed to creation. Remarkably appealed to the mountains, especially today when we talk about the mountains trembling. We have a little shake of the earth and we all get worried. We have a bigger shake of the earth and we call it a catastrophe, a disaster. The number of disasters that cross my desk on a weekly basis is usually two or three. They can be simple, like a river coming up and flooding a village or Ebola, you may have heard of that, which isn't a big deal in Africa. You hear of HIV AIDS. I know of whole villages in Africa where none of the people were over 21 because all of the upper generation died and they call it a village of children because all of the adults have passed away from HIV AIDS. The point is here, when Micah was there presenting God to Israel saying, you need to repent, is that there are things in this world that never change. 
The fact that God created the heavens and the earth never to the change. The fact that God is always God never changes. The fact that God is holy never changes. But the fact that Israel is supposed to worship God and have a covenant relationship was in trouble. And that's why Micah came to them. And here in this context of a courtroom scenario, he talks about where they went wrong and why they went wrong and how it needed to be effected. The indictment here, the accusation, uh, of Jehovah against, and there's a little word there, a couple words in English that says his people. What does that remind us of? Remind us of the fact his, what is that? You English grammaticians. I think that's some sort of a pronoun, right? It demonstrates a relationship between Israel and God. He's standing in court with them, but even then he's not angry. This is not a question of judgment. This is a question of restoration. And when it says his accusation, his striving, he's trying to bring them back to that love relationship with him so that he can continue that covenant relationship that he desires to have with Israel. And when that relationship is renewed, their integral mission, the demonstration of the light in their life coming from the light of Jehovah, converts the nations around them. And that's exactly what we need in the church today for missions. We need people in the church that aren't so concerned about program that they forget about person. They need to be people. We need to people be people who Jesus Christ means everything to us. If we get cut, we bleed Christianity. But too often we treat our faith like a decision at a restaurant as to where we're going to go and what we're going to eat and how on fire we're going to be. And we're not going to eat food that's too spicy because it's bad on our digestion. And we treat Christianity the same way. We don't want to be too on fire because people get all worried about us becoming fanatical. And we forget someone died for us so that we even have a chance to be a believer. Micah is standing there in that courtroom and Jehovah is saying, Israel, oh Israel, my people, please come back. Please come back to that covenant relationship. In verses 3 through 7, in verses 3 through 5, you have Jehovah saying why he's upset with Israel. In verses 6 and 7, you have Israel trying to respond to him. And the basic accusation we see in verses 3 through 5 by Jehovah is this. He is accusing Israel of being ungrateful. It's an accusation of ingratitude, a lack of of thankfulness. Now, I know it's not vogue in a lot of families today, but when I was a little kid growing up, one of the first things I had to learn when someone gave me something was to say, have you forgotten the word? Thank you. Thanks. Gracias. Merci. When I go to countries now, some of the first things I learned how to say is thank you and please. And it's remarkable how you can get into people's hearts by being polite. We as Christians have often learned how to, forgotten how to say thank you to God. 
That's what Jehovah was accusing Israel of. He said, you're ungrateful, and because you've forgotten what I've done for you, you've gone your own way. If you look there at verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Two rhetorical questions. And then there's a legal statement, answer me. He says, give me an answer. And then he goes on to say, why should they be thankful? He said, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. The first thing he said by um, discussing this rhetorical question, was they had been redeemed from a world of darkness, a nation of slavery, and they had been set free and brought into the promised land. Now, does that sound a little bit like accepting Jesus Christ, or does it not? When we don't know right from wrong, and we walk in darkness, and we don't know anything about light, and then Christ comes into your life, and he changes the darkness to light, he takes that burden of sin, and he erases it and washes it away, and he brings you to a place where he promises you a life filled with the Spirit, filled with grace, filled with forgiveness, filled with all the good things, not only in this life and the next, And Israel forgot to say thank you. And often we forget the same thing. And we get so tangled up in the dues and the structure of religiosity that we forget the substance of our faith is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a great church. You can come every time the door is open. But this church won't save you. Knowing all the songs won't save you. Reading your Bible every day won't save you. What will bring you to the point where you step out of the slavery like Egypt did to Israel is when you say to Christ, come in, change me, make me new, make me fresh, and thank him every day for what he did for you. Jehovah said, Israel, you forgot to thank me. Have you forgotten what happened when I brought you out of all those years of slavery? I brought you through the wilderness. I brought you now to the promised land. And you've forgotten all about that. And you've chased after other idols. And you've forgotten your relationship with me. He said, you've forgotten to say thank you because I set you free. Then he says, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. The last part of verse 4, I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. He gave them spiritual leadership. He gave them people who could show them and speak to them what God is telling to them. Now, in pastoral theology, we talk about whether there's lady pastors and men pastors. And I like to stir up the nest and make people think that whole thing through. If you want to know why Miriam is on the list of spiritual leadership, you go talk to Pastor Jim. I'm not going to talk about it today. But this one thing I will say, God will always provide spiritual leaders for people to look to in their time of need. The countries I go to, a lot of those countries, I have people who teach the scriptures who can't read. I can't explain it. I know one old Quechua Indian man who has his Bible in Quechua or in Spanish. He doesn't know Spanish, but he takes that Bible. He's a truck driver by by trade. He takes that Bible and he goes from place to place and people get saved. And I asked him how he did it. And he said, it's easy. The people around me know how to read. And he opened his Bibles and down the margins of the Bibles, he has his own little hieroglyphic marks that he makes. And he starts witnessing, and they say, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, I don't, but the Bible does. And he digs out his Bible, and he looks down, and he finds that point. He says, you know how to read, you read it. 
And the person reads it, and then he explains it to them, and people get saved. Why? Because God has appointed spiritual witnesses and leaders throughout the world in which we live. It's up to us to find them, and it's up to us to be that kind of person. The world will never read this book. It will never read the Bible, but it will read the words of Christ inscribed on your heart. And Jehovah said to Israel, I gave you spiritual leaders. Have you forgotten that I gave you spiritual leaders? And then he gives them something else that they should be thankful for. He says, my people, remember when Balak, king of Moab, um, counseled what Balaam, son of Beor, should answer and what Beor answered. Now, this is a little bit of an obscure story. And unless you're a scholar in Old Testament, you might have to scratch your head saying, I don't know what the B&B is all about. The first guy was a king. He was a Canaanite king. And Israel started coming and they were going to take over his land. So the second B, Balaam, he was a prophet. And he went and got this prophet of God and he said, I know that if this prophet condemns the Israelites, they don't have a chance. And so he said to him, I want you to condemn this nation. And the prophet said, I'm sorry, I can only speak the words that God gives to me. And God took him to the first, or the king took him to the first place. He said, there they are. And you could see the people spread out. He said, give him a curse. Make it a good one. And he stood up and he said, Jehovah bless you, O nation of Israel. And the, and the blessing rolls like the waters of the ocean off his tongue. And the king's face goes pale and he's, oops, just a minute. Let's go to a different place. And they did it four times. And four times, God gave a fourfold spiritual blessing on the Israelites by a person who wanted to condemn them and curse them. And Jehovah says, hey, you forgot what I did for you there. You got a fourfold blessing. It's remarkable in the world today in which we live, where we live in a hostile environment. You may think in North America that our environment is hostile. I tell you, it can get a lot worse than it already is. When people die for their faith, when children are removed from their parents because of their faith, that's a hostile environment. In Arista, several years ago in India, we had a major persecution where 21 of our churches were burned to the ground in a matter of days. A lot of people were killed and there were a lot of orphans that were there. And people would come out of the woodwork and they'd say, those orphans are our children because they wanted to take the Christian children and re-indoctrinate them back into Buddhism. Or in that case, Hinduism. And we had to stand up and document to the government that these were, in fact, Christian children. And we created a little group of hidden orphans and we took care of those 29 orphans in a hidden place. For We're still taking care of them there. We need to realize that we are not accepted as believers in this world because we are children of light and we live in a world that's filled with darkness. And when Jehovah said to Israel, you are expected to be children of light and you're acting as children of darkness because you forgot of the blessing I gave you when you were supposed to be cursed, you need to be thankful. Jehovah gives another one. Just moving down quickly through there. If you look there in verse 5. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. That's where they were going from the wilderness into the promised land. And it wasn't a pristine trip. 
In fact, they messed up three times. They got involved with Baal worship. And then they got involved with the Midianite priestess. And then they got in the edge of the border, ready to cross the Jordan, to go into the Promised Land and receive what God had given to them. And two of the tribes of Israel say, Oop, you know, we like it out here in the wilderness. We really don't want to go over there. And they refused to move into God's blessing for them. And Jehovah says, in spite of all of that, In spite of all of that, I blessed you. And now your ingratitude has ruined our relationship. Then we have the response of the the Israelites on the part of Micah speaking for them in verse 6. What shall I come before, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with him? Before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? In verse 6 it says, what shall I come with before the Lord? The actual construct of that Hebrew phrase refers to true worship. The fact that true worship begins with sacrifice. The fact that true worship is prescribed by Jehovah, not by man. But the second phrase there, with what shall I bow down, that's written because it's always used in pagan idol worship about bowing down an altar. So at the very beginning, the response to Jehovah was, here's the true worship, here's the false worship, and they give a whole bunch of different reasons why they can't come and worship Jehovah, because they can't attain those kind of sacrifices. They give those four questions there at the beginning, and then they try and define how they can come to God in on their own terms. And there's three basic ways they give us there. The first one is outward acts. Obsequious religious activity. Everybody has heard about Islam, but previously you didn't know Islam was here. Over half of of the Afro-Americans that came from Africa to the United States during those days of slave trade were Islamics. We didn't hear about that. Islam has five pillars, five pillars of Islam that make you a good Muslim. Charity, giving to people, taking care of people in difficulty. But there's also a couple of them in there that we don't follow with. One is prayer. Oops, Christians pray. But no, under Islam, you have to pray five times a day. And you have to do um, hajjij. You have to make a journey to Mecca. The attempt to gain favor with God under man's own activities, is nothing new. That clock has turned into a stopwatch. So Israel says, all right, here's what we can do. How about pious gifts? How about if I give my child as a sacrifice? How about personal suffering and self-denial? On Easter, in a lot of the countries, they have a procession of what they call the crucified Christ, and somebody volunteers, and they nail him to a cross and carry him through the streets. And other people beat themselves and do weird things to try to gain favor with God. It's not new today. The Israelites were doing it then. I can take you to places in India 
where they are still doing human sacrifice. I can take you to places in the Western Hemisphere where they're still doing human sacrifice. And in that whole mask, we come to verse 8, which is such a pleasant promise when it says, He showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? He only requires three things. To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. To act justly, holiness, nothing more or less than the exclusive practice of the character of God, because God is a holy God. Be holy, for I am holy. And when you see things that are just, you reinforce them. When you see things that are unjust, you speak out. The church should not be a political organization, but the church should always speak for righteousness and justice and truth and for the downtrodden and for people who are suffering because they live in a sinful world. Because God is a holy God, stands for what is right, and he identifies what is wrong and he condemns it. And we as believers, if we are to come to God on his terms, have to stand for holiness. But holiness without mercy becomes legalism. And so he gives us the second thing there. The motivation behind the justice is loving mercy. Being able to do things that are kind and compassionate and filled with grace, not only because we have to, but because we can And when someone gets a blessing, you rejoice with them. And when you can give a blessing to someone without them ever knowing where it comes from, you do it. Why? Because God in his mercy loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He couldn't get a thing out of it, but he still gave his son for us. Live holy. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. The imagery there is walking hand in hand with the divine, recognizing who you are. We're not perfect. We're just forgiven. We're not saints, but God looks at us like we are saints. We fall and we're forgiven, but we're children of light. When we talk about integral mercy, integral missions, whether it's doing missionary work overseas or in your community with the expatriate people that live here or with your neighbor who only uses the name Jesus when he's upset. The only way to get to them and bring them to God on God's terms is to demonstrate justice, demonstrate loving kindness, and walk with God. This is the future of mission. This is the future of your church. This is the future of how we reach the world for Jesus Christ when they really don't want to hear about him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every one of the people here this morning. Some I know, and I know they know you. Some I don't know, and I don't know if they know you. But I know that you're here. You're walking in our midst. You're looking at hearts. And you can say, yes, this one walked with me. No, that one does not. Father, I would ask that we would be people who would decide what we believe and live what we decide. And that we would live in holiness, walk in mercy, and humbly hold hands with our God as we move in him. In your name we pray.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.